Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is film scoring mixer Bobby Fernandez. First of all, the vinyl business isn't quite what it's cracked up to be. Why do I say that? Well, the latest Jack White release just went to number one. It's called Boarding House Reach, and it experienced the fourth largest sales week for vinyl since 1991. So with that, you would think that it sold hundreds of thousands of copies, right? Nope. It sold 27,000. That's all. And it turns out that the largest selling vinyl record in its first week of release was also by Jack White, and this is Lazaretto, and that was only at 40,000, and the total vinyl sales for that album is only 120,000. Now, Pearl Jam is second at 34,000 for its first week with 105,000 total. Adele was 31,000 on her first week and sold 199,000 vinyl albums. Now, this is out of a total of 9.4 million albums sold. So the fact of the matter is, whatever you think about vinyl, it's not selling a lot. For some reason, we get an impression that vinyl is selling like hotcakes, and it's far from the truth. In fact, vinyl is selling in dribs and drabs, and it's probably not going to peak that much higher because there's some vinyl fatigue that's beginning to set in. People are tired of paying the higher prices, and in fact, they're not getting the releases that they want. So there's problems with this market that for some reason is very glamorous, and I can't quite figure out why. Every artist, every band wants to release vinyl, but the fact of the matter is, there's not that many people that actually want to buy it. Just ask Jack White. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars. And for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, if you're a Pro Tools user, you might want to know that there's a new Pro Tools name, and it's called Pro Tools ultimate so we have pro tools 2018 and then we have pro tools ultimate what is the difference well pro tools ultimate basically includes the complete plug-in bundle which is worth about 50 bucks and the machine control package which is about 750 dollars this is for the software only we're not talking about any hardware here we're talking about what used to be called pro tools hd is now called pro tools Ultimate. Now, Ultimate includes a bunch of things that you probably won't need unless you're doing post-production because it's very post-centric. It has, for instance, all the surround tools that you need. It has clip effects. It has advanced editing, meaning scrub trim, replace region, fit to marks, matching channels, back and play, auto fade. I like some of those, but I can live without them. It has some advanced automation features like punch, capture, right to stop, right to all enabled, auto match. Yeah, I can live without most of those as well. But the thing about it is, it's pretty expensive. Pro Tools Ultimate is $999 per year via subscription. If you want to buy it, it's called a perpetual license and it's $2,500. Now, regular Pro Tools, Pro Tools 2018, is $30 a month on a subscription 
or $5.99 for a perpetual license, a one-time fee. But again, what you're going to have to do is pay for upgrades and pay for any service. So that's the downside of owning Pro Tools, getting really expensive. Plus, if you are a Pro Tools HD or now Pro Tools Ultimate customer, and you have anything other than Avid hardware, in other words, you have your own interfaces that you like, let's say it's Universal Audio, let's say it's Apogee, doesn't matter, you have to also buy a Digilink license, which is about 300 bucks in order for Pro Tools Ultimate to talk to that hardware. And that seems like highway robbery to me. But anyway, Pro Tools is getting away with it, at least for now, and especially in the post market where it seems like people are locked in there. But if you listen to some of my upcoming podcasts, I think you'll see that there are now some cracks happening in the Pro Tools armor, at least in the post arena. So anyway, Pro Tools has a new name, for better or for worse. If you're a Pro Tools user, you're probably still paying. My guest this week is scoring mixer Bobby Fernandez, who's recorded and mixed the scores on hundreds of major film studio movies. Just to give you an example, Bobby has over 300 IMDb credits, but that doesn't include over 200 films that he wasn't credited on when he was working at Warner Brothers. Bobby's also won a Grammy for Album of the Year and has been nominated for a variety of other awards, including a Primetime Emmy Outstanding Sound Mixing Award, BAFTA Best Sound and Film Award, Cinema Audio Society Outstanding Achievement for Sound Mixing, and several Best Sound Mixing by the Online Film and Television Association. As you'll hear, Bobby has some excellent stories about his early days in the Warner Brothers lot, to working with Clint Eastwood, to breaking into the business. We also got geeky about the mics he uses for recording an orchestra, and a special aha moment that he had when mixing surround. I spoke with him via phone from his home in Los Angeles. Back at lunch, you began to tell me the story about how you get into the business, which is fascinating. Can we go back to that again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was working at a company called Ralph M. Parsons, and they were, uh, it's a big uh, construction development company. They're in uh, Pasadena now. They were in downtown Los Angeles when I was working for them. And I was actually going to school. I was going to Sherrard's Art Institute, um, which I had a full scholarship for, but that didn't pay for your food and your clothing. So a friend of mine uh, got me a job, part-time job in their stock room. And of course the engineers would see me doing all my drawings and layout stuff. And then they came and asked me if I would help them do some, you know, blue, uh, blueprint corrections, which I did. And uh, then they came back and asked if I could do more and more and more. And then one day they came and asked if I would like to join them out on the floor. And, uh, you know, I, 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 like I told you at the, the lunch. I thought it was a party, somebody's birthday party. They said, no, we want you to come out and do what we do. And I said, I can't. I already, you know, I have a scholarship. And, and they said, the other company will absorb that. And uh, you'll get all your training and, and certified and so on. So uh, I, I took the leap. I did it. And, um, and it's actually pretty good because I, I made, I was making pretty good money. But that wasn't happy there. So anyway, I, I moved on. I had a friend who was at uh, Warner Brothers. And he knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into film recording. And uh, he said, listen to me, all you have to do, you have to get on the lot. That's the main thing. Get on the lot. And once you do, you can go wherever you want. So he said, there's a job in the mailroom, which is uh, perfect. At that point, that was a springboard for a lot of people. It doesn't happen that way anymore. So I went, uh, applied, got the job. And at the same, that very same week, um, they called me up to a meeting um, in, in the huge boardroom. And they were actually 
promoting me to, um, you know, a project manager position. And I had to tell them I, 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 I I'm leaving the company and they, they thought I was going to a, a competitor. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go work at Warner Brothers. What are you going to do? I'm, well, I'm going to work in the mailroom. And they, they looked at me like that was nuts. And I, and I proceeded to tell them what I wanted to do. And I said, look, I started here uh, in the stock room. Look, you guys are giving me a project manager position now. So I, I, I have to try this. So anyway, that, that was behind me when I got the job at Warner Brothers. Um, and here's the part I was telling you about that, that where uh, my first day on the job in the mailroom, uh, part of my route was covering the sound department. So I walk into the sound department and I'm on the second floor. And as I walk in directly in front of me, it's this little office with this guy sitting behind the desk. And then to my right uh, is a huge office with this huge mahogany desk and this little old guy sitting back there. And that was George Groves. He was the head of Warner Sound. Um, back then, um, the credit for the sound or anything like that would all go to the head of the sound department. So wow. you can see his name on all the Warner films. Yeah. So Al Green was the assistant head. And then to the left was uh, Kay, the secretary. So I walked up to her, introduced myself, uh, who I was, and I said, hey, um, do you have any openings in the sound department? And she said, mm, are you in the union? I said, no. I said, well, how do I get in the union? Well, we have to hire you. Oh, okay, will you hire me? Are you in the union? No. <laughs> uh, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm not in the union, but I'll be in the union if you hire me, but you won't hire me because I'm not in the union. So when he had that particular conversation, almost pervade him, pervade him, oh, sorry, pervade him, bait him to me. Went on for uh, uh, several months, every, say five days a week. Every week, every work day I'd walk in there, every morning I'd say the same thing. And so one Monday morning I walked in and I noticed that the little office direction in front of me was completely empty, not even a desk. So I walked up to Kay and I said, hey, do you have any openings in the sound department? And before she could respond, this voice came from the big office and said, hey, kid, you're hired. Come here, I want to talk to you. <laughs> and it was Al Green. He had been promoted to the head of the sound department. So he said, listen, come here, uh, you're, you're working for me. I said, anybody that's as persistent as you, I want working for me. So I want you to go back down to the mailroom and tell them that you're now working for Al Green in the sound department. I did that and came back. And uh, back then they expected that. I mean, the mailroom guys, you know, you're, you're expected to go off and do other things. You become an editor, wherever you want to go on a lot. So I went up to the sound department. Al Green said, well, what, what is it you want to do? And I said, well, I want to record music for motion pictures. I want to be a recording engineer. For, and he said, oh, you want to be a scoring mixer? At the time, I had no idea that that was what it was called. I just thought it was a recording engineer. So a scoring mixer. And I said, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's what I want to be. So I said, okay, great. Great. Uh, I can make that happen for you. But you have to do something for me. Said, What's that? Well, I want you to learn as much about sound. Film sound, it's just sound in general. But primarily film sound because this is a film studio. And I want you to learn as much as you can. And I'll be asking you questions as we go along. And I did that. And I, I, I mentioned to you that I had this book, the audio cyclopedia, which was a huge Bible I carried around with me. And I was always asking questions. I became sort of the pest in, in the sound department because people would see me coming and go, Oh God, here comes a kid again. He never stops asking questions. Huh. Yeah, but I did. And then at one point, um, we get to a, a, a um, point in time where every studio has a hiatus point. In the summertime, they close down to keep a skeleton crew. 
So Al Green called me up to his office and he said, hey, you know, I, I, have, to, I have to let you go. And I thought, oh, wow. But I was gone for it. He said, no, I'm bringing you back. But he, and he explained the whole highest thing to me. So he said, just keep studying, keep doing all. And I did. I was hanging out at, uh, hanging out with friends who, who uh, worked in Hollywood at um, Sound Factory. So I would go there and hang out with them for the summer and then came back. And uh, what I did when I came back was I took on every job that no one wanted to do, every lousy, crummy job that no one wanted, or everything. I learned everything. And then hiatus comes back around again. I get called up to the office and I said, yeah, I know it's hiatus time. I'm ready. I saved my money. My wife and I are ready to, you know, we're okay. They said, no, no, that's not why I called you up here. I said, I'm keeping you for the summer because you're the only guy in my crew that can do everything. And so you're staying on. Wow. And from that point on, I was, I was never laid off again. So I just kept working and working and working. And, and then at one point, Al, Al Green says to me, he called me up again. He says, I'm sending you. Monday morning, you're starting on the scoring stage with Danny Wong, who became my mentor and a great friend. So, uh, and Al Green explained to me that he's, yeah, he's the best scoring mixer in town. He's a fantastic guy. Um, a little opinionated, and he's got a huge head. So, and it's huge, massive ego. I said, well, you know, it's okay. And, and uh, he says, okay, so Monday morning, um, 8 o'clock, you're over there. So I started to walk out the door, and as I'm walking out the door, Al says, oh, hey, Bob, I forgot one thing. So what's that? Said, yeah, there's a good chance he's not going to like you. <laughs> you know, that he can join the club with the guys downstairs because they don't like me either. And so anyway, uh, we, and, you know, we met on Monday, and, and uh, we hit it off right away. So that, that was the start of my uh, training on the scoring stage. And, and Danny wanted me to learn everything on, on the stage, setting microphones, where people go, and and, you know, how the microphone works and how he sets things up. Um, and his thoughts were, and were true. And I, this is what I tell other people too, is that you need to learn everything out on stage first, because if you don't know what's happening out here, it's never going to work for you behind the glass. Yeah. And I think that's what, what I, 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 I kind of feel our industry has gotten away from where guys working in the studio had, had uh, mentors that would really take them under the wing and, and train them. That doesn't happen on film studios anymore. I mean, I'm sure it's happening in record studios, but film studios, that's, that's gone away. Oh, it's gone so away. I did that. I, I was his, you know, I did all the setup stuff and, you know, learned all the differences and uh, microphones and, you know, he covered a lot of things for me. So but I want you, I want you to hear a couple of things. I want you to know something. And, you know, and so he would show me, like he'd put up an U87 and a U67 and we'd listen and we record stuff with it. And he says, and I listen, you listen, I want you to learn the difference between odd order and even order harmonic distortion. I want you to know what intermodulation distortion sounds like so you can avoid it. And if you do what I tell you and place the mics where it's at, you're never going to have any of those problems. Wow. So anyway, I did all that. And, and, and uh, then I slowly moved into the control room where I would, um, you know, set up the, the console, patch things in, label it. Uh, get everything set. So what I started doing when he came in, he, he would look and go, okay, and I would, everything was laid out where he wanted it. And, and then I would watch him during the day as he would EQ things. And there were things that he would pre EQ because either he, he did so much work. He knew what the microphones did on certain instruments. So I would watch that. And at the end of the day, I would make a note of everything he did on every picture. And I would just keep it and keep it and, and just keep building up stuff. So, his basic settings and, and where he liked things and, you know, where his reverb sense uh, set, you know, were set up. So 
what I did was when, when uh, I started setting up again, when, when I had all those notes, I would set everything up and, and set all the EQ hmm. uh, to, according to my notes and stuff that he'd done in the past. And he came in the first time he came in, he looked at it, he goes, what? He couldn't believe it, that everything is right where he wanted it to be. And he said, what am I going to do now? I said, we're just mix. That's what you're here for. <laughs> so that's how, that was our, our relationship. And he, he was, I, I, you couldn't ask for a better mentor. He was a great guy. And well, he passed on so much knowledge. I mean, he's just, he's, his mixes were absolutely amazing. And he mixed right up until his 80s. He did uh, a good example of how, how his mixes sounded. If you listen to Michael Giacchino's um, Incredibles, that's an amazing sounding score. Yeah. Another one that shows you that, that his, his um, sound that he get, gets was a film called um, The Good Son. That's an amazing sounding score. I mean, all this stuff sounds great, but those are the two things that, that really stuck out in my mind. That, that those two scores that I heard that were really amazing. Well, Bobby, how long did it take you before you started to mix yourself? Well, that was four years. Yeah. What happened? Well, you know, after doing all that stuff, and um, in that whole thing of of um, setting up for Danny and doing all that stuff, um, at that period, about midway through, I think my second year, or or actually, yeah, the start of my second year, Warner's had had uh, had started to embrace multi-track recording because back then we were recording to to a 35 millimeter mag. Yeah. Yeah. And so they went to multi-track recording. So I got put on a lot of record dates. I learned, you know, the machines, I learned how to punch in and edit. So I got put in a lot of record dates. So that went on and on. And then at one point I was also the stage manager too. So at one point uh, I get a call and, uh, it's on a Friday and, uh, Al Green, the head of the sound department, called me and said, hey, I'd like you to come up here to the office. I'd like to see you. And I thought, ah, you know, what do I do? Anyway, I went up there, and Danny Wallen was sitting up there with, with Al. And uh, Al says, come on, sit down. You know, Danny and I were talking, and Danny says, it's time for you to start mixing. And I said, wow, okay. And he said, but we both agree on one thing, that in order for you to be not just a good mixer, but a great mixer, you have to no, you have to know what's expected of a scoring mixer on the dub stage. So we'd like you to spend a year on the dub stage learning all this stuff. He said, okay. So that trans, you know, we, we move into the next Monday. He said, he said to me, you're going to be working with uh, Walter Goss, who is this Academy Award winning dialogue mixer. Great guy. You're going to be his crew. And we have another fellow coming in, Mike Jerome, who's going to be effects. You're going to be music. I said, okay, great. We'll start training on Monday. He said, yep, you start training on Monday. So we show up on Monday and it's seven o'clock in the morning. And, um, you know, I, I, I knew Walter, but I've never worked with him because I was never in the mixing position. So we introduced ourselves again. He knows who I am. And so I said, Hey, Walter, so are, we're going to start training at eight o'clock. And he laughed at me and he said, training, what are you talking about? Universal studio has booked this room for the entire year. Come, come nine o'clock, pal, we're mixing. And I said, what? Wow. You know, I had, I had a reasonable uh, you know, idea of what mixing was all about. I mean, I, I'd done some like, you know, as, as every kid does some home studio mixing, that kind of stuff, but not on this grand scale. So he, he said, okay, you're going to sit there. So I sat to Walter's right and Mike sat on his left. And, uh, so Mike, uh, Walter said to me, so listen, as we're going along, when I yell square hole, 
I want you to bring the music down for the dialogue and bring it right back up again. I said, okay. So that's how we started off. And, and uh, by our, I think by the end of the month, we were actually a pretty good crew. And so we went on like that for about another five months. Um, and it was really busy. I mean, we were really busy. And you talk about the learning curve. It was amazing. So anyway, I, I, I did that. And then here's how I got into mixing on music. So we were working on a miniseries, one of the Kennedy miniseries, and the head of the sound department comes in with the assistant head of music from Columbia, who, by the way, we did not get along at all. Mm. We just did not get along. We were like oil and water. We did not mix. So he comes in, and he says, hey, Bob, we need you on the scoring stage. And I said, I can't. I'm, I'm in the middle of a mix. He said, you're being replaced. We need you on the scoring stage right away. Well, it turns out Jack Nietzsche was doing a score there for a film called Hardcore. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a big film at the time. Yeah, George C. Scott and a bunch of other people. So it was, it was not a small film. So what's the situation? So, well, Jack's not happy with, with the sound he's getting on stage. And he's threatened to take the picture off the lot somewhere else. And he's got his agent there. And anyway, so I, I walk over to the stage with these guys because they wanted, you know, to, wanted me to see what I could do. Well, at that time, I was a you know, skinny kid. I was 24 years old, and I had long hair. And um, so I walk on the stage, and in the control room is, you know, Jack, his agent, his attorney, um, John Beach, who was the head of the music, uh, head of Columbia Pictures at the time, and a whole bunch of heavyweights. And so this guy that, uh, I, won't, I won't give out names, but yeah, we didn't get along. He puts his arm around me, and he says, hey, everybody, I'd like you to meet Robbie Hernandez, our rock and roll mixer. And in my mind, I'm thinking, that's not my name, and I'm not your rock and roll mix. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, you get that feeling that you've just been thrown to the rolls. Anyway, so wow. um, I, I, you know, I was introduced to Jack. We talked, and uh, we hit it off right away. So I went out on stage, and I looked at what was going on. What, what he wasn't happy with was the drums. There was one microphone over the drum kit and one on the kick drum. And that's not what he wanted. You know, and having set up um, so many drum kits, on the record dates that I assisted on and, and stuff with Danny, I knew exactly what he wanted. So I, yeah, I, I called the stage manager, who was the guy I trained, and I said, look at this, you know what we have to do? So we went and got all the mics, mic the toms and everything. We got everything done. You know, we put, you know, we, we mic the guitars differently. We, we did a lot of stuff. And, and we, you know, I got a sound, we rehearsed it, and he said, that's what I was looking for. And I, we got the film done. It was great. And so at, once that film was done, I never went back to the dub stage. I stayed on there, and it was one project after the next, on and on and on. So it was a great learning curve in that respect as well. Wow. And at the same time, I'm still getting input from Danny. You never stop learning, and that's, you know, that's what he instilled in me. Yeah. Just keep asking questions, keep learning. If you have a problem, ask me. So, so that's how I got into That's how I started mixing. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, before you mentioned that you used to be able to start in the mail room and then go wherever you wanted, and you said that you can't do that anymore. What happened? No, that, that, I, I think it's because everything's changed. It's the whole studio architecture is gone. I mean, just, when I started at Warner Brothers, it was really like a family, and pretty much all the major studios were, were like that. And they expected it. Like uh, A good example is when I was in the mail room. guy, um, Rob Friedman, who was just ahead of me, he left the mail room. And he became the head of international and then a couple of other people became big, uh, editors and, uh, you know, all and on in the camera and so on. And that, that was the whole 
point of the, of the mailroom. No one, no, no one ever starts in the mailroom to be, you know, a career mailboy. Yeah, right. that's not what you want to do. But it is, it is a, a springboard to to get off into where you want to go. And I, I, having that opportunity, I went to, uh, you know, I went to the editorial department, and the sound department, the camera. I went to everything on the lot and looked at them. Um, and about that, uh, and I was going around and, and, you know, this whole thing and be asking Kay every morning about the same thing. And I met Rudy Fair, who was the, um, the head of, um, Warner Brothers edi- uh, editorial. And he's a very famous guy, big, big guy, German accent and really, really funny guy. So I got to know him and uh, he would see me and he'd ask me, Hey, how's it going with the sound? I said, eh, not, not too good, Rudy. I'm still trying. And he said to me. Okay, I tell you what, if it doesn't work out for you, you can always come to me. I'll make you an editor. And I said, I can't lose, Rudy. Okay. <laughs> so when I did get accepted to the sound department, I went and told him, I said, thanks for the offer for me, but I'm working for Al Green now. I said, okay. So there was a, it was a lot, it was a whole different uh, way of, of operating the studio. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to work that way anymore. You mentioned as well that there's no mentors anymore. There's not the mentorship program that there used to be. And it's like that in music as well. That's kind of dropped away. But why did it happen in, in, in your part of the business? What happened? Well, what happened was, uh, the independent world came about. And, uh, so scoring stages no longer had a staff mixer. Uh. You didn't have anybody on staff that, that could train anybody. And when I left Warner brothers in 1994, I was the last staff mixer in Hollywood. So when I left, that ended that whole stream right there. Wow. That was gone. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the beauty of working with uh, Warner Brothers, when I first started, and I started to do all the training with Al, and, you know, what, what they did was they put me on a three-year contract. And I, the reason for that is they're going to spend all the money training me. They want to make sure I'm going to stay there at least three years. Yeah. I'm not going to run away. So I had that three-year contract for 24 years <laughs> and every three years it would come up and I would get renewed without even me saying, Hey, I have my contract. And I'd see Al Green walking down the alleyway about the scoring stage and he, he would look at me and he'd laugh and he'd say, Hey, your contract just came up by the way. I renewed it and you got a raise and then keep walking. And that was the extent of my negotiation. Wow. So it was a great, it was a great thing, but, but the thing about that, it was, it was really an exclusive contract. So there was a bad side to that. I mean, I was guaranteed the good side was I was on staff and I was guaranteed five days a week. You know, even if I didn't work five days a week, I got paid for five days a week. Um, but the, the downside was that I couldn't go anywhere. I mean, I, I was exclusively Warner brother property. Yeah. So when I get, you know, people would ask me, Hey, could you go here uh, and record this for me? Nope. So I was basically there. And, and not only that, Warner's had a policy of not including um, scoring mixers in the credits. So I've got probably maybe 200, 250 films that I was never credited for oh, man. because they have this policy. And there was a woman I used to go talk to and I'd say, hey, um, why, why don't I have uh, or don't I get screen credit on the films I'm doing? It's just because we don't want a policy that that's, you know, you don't get crazy course or make sure don't get credit. I said, well, that's kind of like a policy. I said, that's kind of like my resume. And she looked at me and said, resume, you don't need a resume. You own an exclusive contract with Warner Brothers. You work for us. Huh. And it's like, oh, well, you know, so 
anyway, that, that went on for a while. Then when I started working with other people that had production offices there, uh, it was uh, Dick Donner. We did all the um, Lethal Weapon movies and Joel Silver, we, people like that. And other companies that would come in, I would get credit on all those films. But if it was exclusively a Warner Brothers film, no. They're doing it now, years later. Uh, uh, when I came back as a... Uh, I was still there, I think. I, I think in probably the early 90s, I started to get credit for Warner Films. Um, but I left Warner's uh, because of the stage being in such a state of disrepair. It, 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 at a point where it needed to be totally... Really, the console needed to be taken out. It was an old quad console. and uh, you know, it, 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 it served its time. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you ever worked on those quiet consoles? But they're very basic. Yeah, very basic consoles, and um, there um, there are no um, effects. And there's no. Um, you wouldn't have a compressor. You wouldn't have you would, nothing. You just have EQ, and that's it. And some sends. And it, it was not an inline console either. It was a sidecar monitor. So. Um, that was, you know, your, your mix is coming up way over on the right side. So oh, yeah. That's... You have to you know, roll over and, and adjust that. Sure. But, uh, but I left there because it, it was, you know, we, we were, nobody was showing up. So I decided to leave. They, at, at one point, they were actually going to close the stage down. Um, and uh, that I didn't want to see happen, you know, because that, that's my home studio. And I love that stage. Yeah, sure. Um, and it just so happens, you know, I was told on a Monday, on a Friday, I was, I was called in, um, well, this is before, yeah, about uh, a little before I left, maybe a couple of weeks before I left. Um, I was called upstairs, and I uh, know it was actually a week before I left. I was called upstairs, and I had the sign department says, you know, I'm, I'm letting you go. So at the end of the day, not even a two-week notice, just that, you know, you call me up, and, and I have a session starting in an hour, and then I've just been fired. Huh. And said, so you didn't, I'm, said, I'm closing down the stage this week, this, this weekend, we're coming in and start taking stuff out. And he was doing it without even the head of the studio knowing about it. Wow. He was just closing it down. And so, uh, fortunately, you know, I've been working with, with Clint Eastwood for some time and we were working on this film called stars fell on Henrietta. And it wasn't a film that he was in or he was producing. And he was sitting next to me at the console because he always used to like to do that. He'd sit there and talk about the film or you know, he'd, he'd be listening. And so I, I told him, I said, hey, Clint, you know, this is the last film you and I are going to be working on together on the stage. And his reaction was, well, where are you going? Are you leaving? And I said, no, no, no. I, I've, I've been fired and they're closing the stage down and they're tearing it, starting to tear it apart Monday, uh, Saturday. And he said, what? And I said, he said, who, well, who's tearing it down? And I told him, well, he had this honey department. So this is a great thing. He, he rolls over to the phone, picks it up, calls the head of the studio, which is an old friend of his, and tells him, you know, what's going on. He said, yeah, stage is being, being closed down. My engineer, Bobby Fernandez, has been fired. See what you can do about it. Take care of it. And that was it. And uh, he kept the stage open. Because uh, wow. you know, the head of the studio called the head of the sound department and, and get, read him the riot act. Luckily for me, my chief engineer, Klaus Wiedermann, was sitting across the table at a desk from him when the call came in. And uh, he, he heard everything because it was on speakerphone. Wow. And he came downstairs, down to the scoring stage later, told me exactly what had happened. So at the end of the day, I wasn't sure if it had been resolved or it was going to stay open or what was going on. So anyway, I was packing up my gear and, and uh, 
getting ready to leave when he head of the sound department walks in and he looks at me and he said, man, you sure stirred up a lot of shit today. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was laughing and I said, what are you going to do, fire me? Ah, I'm sorry, you already did. Yeah, yeah. I don't care. And that was it. And he said, oh, you're not fired. You're not fired. We have to talk. So the following week we had a conversation. But it turns out that they didn't have a date as to when they wanted to redo the stage or the budget, whatever. And I said, well, how long do you think it'll be? It could be a year, two or three. And I said, what? And they offered me a retainer to stay there. And it was, you know, anybody else would have said, hey, yeah, I'll take the retainer to sit here. But that's not what it was about. It was about working. It was about recording music for film, not just sitting there looking at an empty stage. So I said, I can't do this. I said, the problem is if I stay here and take this money, which is, you know, not a bad deal, but in a month, no one's even going to know who the hell I am. Yeah, yeah. And then when you get it back up, no one's really going to know who I am. You know, so anyway, so I left and, and uh, went independent at that point. Well, let's talk about recording a little bit. So Absolutely, yeah. You use a decatree? I, I use the decatree and I use outriggers on the left and right. Uh, a, a few times I've used uh, five mics across the front and then three mics on the inside. I have five M50s across the front. Okay. And then in the orchestra, behind the violas, uh, I, I put three mics across there, which are also M50s. Plus, there, there are spot mics throughout the orchestra. Yeah, yeah. What's on the decatree? Are the M50s? M50s, yeah. Yeah. It's tried and true. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, those are my go-to microphones. Um, but a lot of that depends on what the, what the production is. Mics that I've really had all, uh, some really good um, results were with the um, Sankin, the CL100K. Mm -hmm. I got, uh, I actually bought five matched from, uh, from Sankin. And they're all within like a dB and a half, no, a half a dB of each other. And they sound amazing. Yeah. They're not good in every room. I, I, you know, at Warner's, they're great. And uh, at the bridge, they weren't that great. Um, another mic that I use as, you know, for room mics would be the, um, Sank and not Sank, it should be Chefs. Yeah. The, yeah. uh, MK2H and then, uh, and the B&K 4006s. I use those. Um, both the Chefs and the, um, B&Ks I use with that little diffusion ball put on. Oh, right. I guess that's supposed to replicate. The pickup pattern. I think it's called Olsen Sphere, I think. Yeah. I, I read that somewhere. I don't know, but really, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I, I do that and I have. You know, five of those for the uh, B&Ks because I do the decatry and the uh, left-right outrigger. And the same with the chefs. I have them for the chefs as well. Are these your personal these mics? These are all my personal mics. Yeah. 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 When I'm working at Warbirds, I'll, I'll take those mics. I'll take specific mics that like my chefs. I'll take those in for certain instruments. Um, but when it comes to strings and brass, I'll use what Warner's has because they have great great collection of U67s. And that for me is like you know, my all time favorite microphone. I use those on violins, violas, cellos, and on the basses. Um, I go between uh, sort of a newer, like the M149 mm -hmm. or the older M1, I'm not sorry, I should see the, um, the 10,001. Oh, right. Yeah. That's a great microphone. A cardioid ribbon microphone. That's great. Have you seen where Neumann has reissued the U67? No, I haven't. No. Yeah, at the last AES, they made the announcement. And wow. Supposedly, it's as close as they could get it to the old ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would be nice. I mean, I when I when I say that, you know, I always say, well, you know, those parts aren't available anymore. The way they did it and the way they made them, 
is not happening anymore. So I, I just wonder how close they can get. I'm sure they're really good. Yeah. You know, you know when they came out with that um, TLM50? Yes, right. Little black microphones. Uh, I, I, I did not like those microphones at all. The TLMs, yes, right. I compared them with, a, with, a, with my M50s, and they're nowhere near yeah. that, that sound. But the 150s, the new ones, the M150s, uh, they're actually pretty good. I have a set of those that I use to decadry occasionally. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, project-specific. I mean, if, I, if I'm working on a big-budget film, obviously I'll use you know, all the tube M50s, the, the, the vintage M50s. If I'm working on sort of a small-budget film, then I'll go to microphone sets, you know, like, like the M150s, that kind of stuff. They still sound good, but you know, I just, I'm not going to break out all the vintage stuff. What's your favorite room to record in? Is this still Warner's? Oh yeah, it's the Warner's. I, I love I love um, Fox. I love Sony. They're they're great rooms. They're great rooms. I tell you what I like about Warner's is that the stage is, is beautiful. It sounds great. The control room is the absolutely perfect size. Now when I go to Fox, it's it's you know that that control room is bigger than my first house. It's <laughs> it just holds so many people there. You know when they redid the redid uh, the control room and the stage. They had been doing some films here, but they weren't Fox films. So I, I just happened to be on the first Fox film, Dr. Doodle, that they were, they were, you know, it, it was their film. And so it was the first Fox film on the new renovated stage. So sitting in there and it turns out that I'm basically mixing a recording for a film in a cocktail party. <laughs> now there were more people in the in the control room because it's a fifteen hundred foot control room. There are more people in the control room than there were in the orchestra, <laughs> and the people in the control room are all talking and drinking. Oh and yeah, I'm thinking like this is crazy. And I kept standing up and asking people to to hold it down to be quiet. I'm recording. I'm trying to listen, and they're kind of, hey, we're listening to the music too. Yeah, but you know, not the same way. <laughs> you know. Yeah. All anyway, right. nobody shut up. They did. It was at the party and. Uh, I don't know where these people came from. I guess it's because it's the first Fox film. Everybody wanted to be there. So yeah. anyway, the downside of that was when I sat down to mix in a quiet room, that was so much noise. It was crazy. I mean, I just, you know, and sort of, and the head of the music department just, you know, got on my case about that, you know, all, all this noise. And I said, Hey, it was your party. And I told you, and, and no one wanted to keep quiet, but yeah. But anyway, that's the Fox room. It, it's it's a it is a great room if it's quiet. Uh, but for me, it's a little too big. I think it's, it's just way too big. I mean, yeah. It puts a lot of people in there, but it, it's too big. Um, Sony, Sony is is a, a good control room, but it's it's kind of a weird shape. It's got this really tall ceiling, um, and I mean, it, it sounds good if you're close to your monitor. You stand back a little bit. It's a little. It's a little strange, but but the stage itself is just a beautiful, glorious sounding stage. Yeah, so, but um, Paramount was another stage uh, now gone away, but that was an interesting. That was not as as live as the others. That was a good stage and did a lot of work there. And as a, a side note, that console that was at Paramount Stage M is the console that's on the bridge now. So that's a lot of history with that board. Yeah, that's what Greg was saying. Are you mixing at home? I, I do mix at home, yeah, yeah. And, you know, primarily everything I do is in surround. What's your studio like? It, well, it's just a small room. And the odd thing about my studio is it was never meant to be a studio. It was, uh, it was, 
I needed a place to work. I was, I was doing Pro Tools stuff in my house, which is now my hi-fi room. Um, so I was working in here, and I had like, an LE system. And um, so it was kind of like in the house all the time, and I wanted to be away. So I, I took a section of the garage, and um, I had gone to an HDX system, so, uh, or an HD system at the time. So I, I moved in there. And again, it was just for me to um, prepare my sessions and just kind of play around with Pro Tools. And um, I was working with this composer, Christopher Young, who had done quite a few films together. And uh, he had a a film that didn't, it was a good film, but it didn't have quite a big budget. So he said, hey, can we we mix in your room? I said, I I think we, yeah, sure, why not? Because I did a lot of stuff in there but not uh, just mixing on my own, not anything to be put out into a studio or, or go anywhere. And so, yeah, I started mixing. I did several films for him there, um, then ended up mixing probably 24 to 30 films in there. Um, but it was never designed to be that, and I was kind of uh, concerned about that because uh, it was never laid out. You see these guys, they have these little elaborate home studios. Yeah, Mine, was, mine never looked like that. But I, I had a friend of mine, Mark Bauer. Have you ever met Mark? He no. was the chief tech when, when Tyo Radford was open, that big room there. Yeah. Uh, he was the chief tech there, so he was a good friend of mine. So I said, hey, Mark, uh, I'm starting to do work in, in my studio at home. Can you just bring your test gear and just give me just give me your opinion? Tell me what I need to do. So he brought it over, and he's in there and testing it out, all the gear up. At the end of it, he said, man, this is not bad. This is really good. I said, what, what do you mean? Well, I said, you're, you're down 1 dB at 10K, and you have a, a 1 dB boost at 40. Other than that, everything's great. Jeez. He said, now we can go out and spend a lot of money and, and buy, you know, uh, an EQ and, and then taper all that stuff for you. But no, I said, he said, but it's not worth it. You know that at 10K, you're just down 1 dB, and at 40, you're up 1. So and I said, great, that's fantastic. Said, yeah, yeah, this is, whatever you did, you did right. It's great. That's awesome. Do you have a console yeah. or is it all in the box? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have an Abbott console. Yeah. I don't have one of the new ones. I have the older ones, the old blue ones. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I, I actually, yeah, you know, for me, I, I, I like mixing the box, but I do like to grab faders. I guess it's just, you know, my early training and sitting at a console. I just like that sort of tactile thing that to be able to grab faders and move them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, occasionally I'll draw in, you know, volume stuff like that. But for me, mixing is all about feeling how it goes, not just drawing a straight line, you know. Yeah, sure. It's great if you want a a nice fade or something like that. But in the middle, especially for me, orchestral work, is if I'm mixing an orchestra, you know, I have, you know, all my my master faders all set up. And and I go to BCA. I do a lot of BCA mixing. And um, do that, and I might. I get you know as I'm listening, I'm watching the film, and I'm writing the orchestra a little bit, maybe a little more on the crescendo or a little less on the decrescendo, that kind of stuff. And um, that's something you can't do just writing it in. You need to be listening to it and looking at it, and and actually feeling the music. So, I mean, I find that when you're when you're just drawing and stuff, you're so detached from the music. For me, mixing is sitting there and listening to it and working with it as you're going along. Yeah, and right, right. That's, that's, that's my approach to it, yeah. What speakers are you using? I'm using PMCs. 
I have the IB ones here, and then I have a small set. And the room is set up for five one. I actually use uh, uh, dual subwoofers. It's it's being fed a mono channel, but it's dual subwoofers. Mm-hmm. Um, then um, surrounds. I have just uh, a set of um, uh, generally ten thirty one A's for the surrounds, and that's just the leftover from what I had before. Because originally, um, like I said, I wasn't really planning on mixing anything in there, and so I had five Genelex in there. Three in front, two in the back, and um, that I had only one sub. And then when I went to the PMCs, the bigger speakers, um, I just uh, you know, I just started changing things around. Got another sub, and that's, and just kept going from there. Would I'd also have a large set of PMCs that I keep in the warehouse, and that they deliver them to whatever studio I'm working at. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, so I have two sets. Actually, I actually have more than than two sets of speakers, but. I have just one set that moves around, then I have different speakers that I can use in the studio. If someone wants to use Channel X, they want to use NS10s or that kind of stuff. Yeah. My NS10s are powered with uh, Ryston power packs. I don't have an individual amp for them. They're just, the amp is, is just, I just stuck it on the back of each one because it is like a piggyback amp. Oh, yeah, right. What kind of deliverables are you you're delivering? I'm delivering, uh, well, stems, and that, that, that depends on what... Uh, what the, the dub stage can handle. But on the average, my stems um, are delivered at um, 48K, 24-bit. And that's only because uh, that's what the dubbing stages are accepting now. Occasionally, I can get away with, with a 96, you know, 24 delivery. But um, for me, it's, it's always been, I always check with them and they said, yeah, can you at least have 24, like, uh, 48, 24. The stems are set up so that I have an orchestra stem, and uh, percussion, you know, high-low percussion. And we're just talking about the acoustic stuff now. Right. And if there's a piano that's featured, then the piano will be on a 5.0 stem. I don't need, I don't need a, a, a .1 for that. A choir, I don't need a .1 for that. It's a five-channel mix. Um, and so on. It, it all depends on what the instruments are. Occasionally, during the, the recording, the director will come up to me and ask me if I can, if it's a, a specific sound he hears, and he'll say, hey, let me have that separately, and for two reasons. Because he may not like the sound, or he's not sure that he's going to use it, or he does like it and he wants to place it elsewhere in the film. So I'll give him just a stem with that, you know, a mixed stem, affected in the whole bit. Yeah. Um, so he can move that around. And the same thing uh, when someone's going to do more than 5-1, say the Atmos guys and things like that, I will separate all things so they can kind of move them around wherever they want. I don't want to say, I don't second guess those guys. It doesn't matter what you're know, dealing with the director on the stage who may have a whole different perspective from me recording and listening to it there. When he gets on the dub stage and he really hears the real effects and the real dialogue, then he'll make all those decisions. Yeah. Are they telling you what they want or are you making the decision thinking, okay, this is I'm probably the, the decisions. What I do is well, they'll ask for certain things, but I, 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 I one thing I, I learned that I, I, I have burned on a couple of times. Uh, they asked, Hey, can you like, Print the, print the reverb elsewhere. We don't want the reverb on the channels. And I thought, that's kind of an odd request. But I did. And uh, I heard the mix. And I was like, why did I do that? <laughs> and it's like, why did I do that? It's like, it sounded awful. I'm sorry. Right, my name is a score mixer on this. And it sounds awful. You know? So I, 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 I fight like hell not to do that. Between scoring and mixing, what's the most fun? I, I love them both. I mean, I just... I, you know, it, 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 I'm, I'm in the moment. If I'm recording, 
I'm in that moment. When I'm mixing, I'm in that moment. I, I love them equally as well. They're, they're just, it, it's a fun process. The thing that, that, that I miss the most nowadays is that because when I'm mixing here at the house, what I miss is being in a control room with other people around you. That camaraderie yeah. and the exchange of ideas and talking about, you know, when someone says, hey, have you heard this? Have you tried this? That kind of stuff. I, what do I, I'm talking to myself in my room. You know, so I, I do miss that. I miss being in a control room. It's the same thing in, yes. in music. Everybody says exactly the same thing where they miss being in a facility yeah. where there's multiple studios and there's always people that are talking to other people. And yeah. It just doesn't happen like that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I really enjoy working at the bridge when I'm at the bridge, uh, the, the village when I can. Oh, yeah. Because you know, all those rooms, and, and you know people, in, in, you know, and if you don't know them, you, you know them by the end of the mix. Yeah, right, right, so right. It's kind of nice. Yeah, yeah I, I love that environment. But unfortunately, that's not my world anymore. Sorry to say that, yeah. What's the least fun of all the things? Is there something that you wake up and you go, oh, i got to do this today, Ugh. No, I, I, I just really haven't. No. I, you know, I, I, I get up every day. I hate this. This sounds kind of corny, but I get up every day. And this is, this is going to be great. You know, I mean, each, each, granted, each session has its own set of problems, but it's not something you can't overcome. Yeah. You know, you might be dealing with a cranky guy or something. Like that. That's just, speaking of cranky guys, it's just something that, that's always bothered me. Because I've always felt blessed to be in this industry to be working with the greatest musicians in the world and be working on great music. And then once in a while you run into somebody that's really grumpy and complains about everything. And I was like, how can you possibly complain when you're in this great environment? Yeah, you know, yeah. that's, uh, that's, that's way beyond me. I, I don't get that at all. And so, okay. But those, those are, I, you know, that's maybe if there's something that bothers me, it's, it's that working with people like that. But I've been very fortunate in that I've worked with some really interesting people. I had a chance to work with Tom Dowd for a bit. I had a chance to work with Sir George Martin, um, B. Hirschberg, who was uh, chief engineer for Warner Brothers Records. Oh, yeah. Um, did a lot of assisting work with Lee, and uh, he was a great guy. Yeah. And all three that I mentioned were fantastic people. Um, you know, and uh, there were so many great people on that sort of inspired me and uh, you know, just learned from all the way up, you know, when people say, yeah, you did it on my own. No, you, nobody does it on their own. Everybody has a mentor. They learn from somebody. What I found out is that you can learn from, you're watching some engineer with you know, a good example. I was watching one guy and he was like, just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And it sounded awful and bad stuff. And I'm, you know, having had a mentor like Danny Wallen and, and working with guys, like you said, like, like George Martin and Tom Dowd and, and, and watching this guy, you learn what not to do. You learn what not to be. You learn, you know, and, and I think it's treating people. That's what I've always, I've always uh, yeah, felt is that in order to get the best out of musicians, you got to treat them fair. You know, be, be, be nice to everybody. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're in a great business. Well, you know, my last question to you is just about that. Was there one thing that maybe you learned along the way, or was there some business advice that someone gave to you, or, or maybe just you had an aha moment along the way somewhere? Yeah, well, the, well, the business advice was, you know, hey, and it, it came from the guy that uh, was the head of our record department, because at one point, uh, uh, when it was the Burbank Studios in Columbia, they, they created a, a third entity, we had, uh, which was a record division. And they were, so anyway, he called me into his office and we we're talking and he said, you know, 
you're going to be doing a, a lot of records. People are going to be coming in and that's the time when, you know, in the, in the mid to late seventies, when everybody was just like coming and they were doing blow everywhere. Yeah. Right. And he said to me, don't, don't get sucked into that. Don't do that. All right. And I want you to just his advice, the money you make, save it. Once you get into that environment, you, 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 it'll ruin your career. So don't, don't do that. Just save your money, focus on the job. And so I, I you know, I, I kept that you know, in my mind and that's what I did. So people would come in and, you know, say, Hey, would you want to hit or something? I can't No, Why not? So somebody has to be in charge of something. Yeah. And since I was the only guy making all the punches and doing the editing, I didn't want to be that. And that's one thing he said to me, he said, listen, if, if you indulge in anything that they're doing, if something goes wrong, they're going to blame it on you. So don't just keep your nose clean. Pay attention to the job. Save your money. It did. Great you advice. It was like, yeah, very good advice, especially at that time. Yeah, so yeah, it was great. So that, that was good advice. And I followed that. And, yeah. um, especially since I, I was the guy doing all the uh, punching and the, and the uh, editing and, sure. and, and, you know, not to blow my own horn, but, I never missed a punch, which was, I always thought that was kind of good. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, you mentioned an aha moment. There was, actually. But it was a mixing aha moment, if you have a minute for me to tell yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. okay. So, um, aside from um, when I mixed that first film for Jack Nietzsche, not only did I uh, record it and mix it, but I went next door to the dub stage, which was back-to-back -back and scoring, and I actually was the re-recording mixer. And I put that music in the film with the, the, the sound effects guy, the dialogue guy. And the dialogue guy was a, um, a guy by the name of um, Lester Thresholds or Lester Thresholds was one of the nicest guys on the planet and really great mixer. So I was watching with the dialogue as he was predating the dialogue and he had this little switchy moving around. I asked him, what's that? He said, that's divergence. Divergence, what did it do? And when he told me what it what it did, I was like, wow, it's just like a light went on. Yeah. Because in mixing, and when you're mixing uh, in, in the early left, center, right, the mono surround, you put something in the center and it sounded so tiny. Yeah, yeah. So he found out, and that's what he found the dialogue. He explained to me why, why they're using divergence with dialogue. It's that it kept in the center, but it spread to the left and to the right. You know, and you can just taper to what you want. Yeah. And that for me, and I've used that on, every surround mix that I've ever done since then. Well, when you're talking about divergence, are you talking primarily on the front speakers or are you using divergence elsewhere too? I, I actually use it all the way around. What I do is if I have something like um, synth pads, for instance, what I'll do is, you know, I, I use surround reverbs on that stuff, but I, I just don't want reverb in behind me. So what I'll do is with the divergence, I'll spread a little bit of that sound to the back. So there's a mixture of reverb and some direct sound back there, but never taking away from the front because that's, you, you never want to get the, uh, the, the audience starts looking around for something. You always want to keep their attention on the screen. Right. So yeah, I use that uh, all like on solo instruments, on um, vocals. Yeah. I use that quite often. That is my sort of go-to um, fix for, for things in the center channel. Um, and what that allows you to do, Bob, is that if you have a solo, in the a solo instrument in the center channel, it still spills to the left and to the right. So in the final mix, as if they're, they're playing that against dialogue, they can lower that center channel down and still have the solo there because you still have spill from the left and the right. So that, that takes care of that problem. Yeah. 
So it never really goes away. So that, to me, that was an aha mixed moment at that point, you know? I mean, it's not like what record guys do, but it's, you know, what film guys do. Thanks for listening and being my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.